I am with uh, Linda Marks, a body-centered psychotherapist who actually focuses a lot on the heart. Hi, Linda. Hi there. How are you? Good, thanks. Uh, so do you want to tell us a little bit about how you came to do what you're doing? Certainly. Um, one can say I literally followed my heart. Um, when I was a young girl, I had a very clear sense of mission. I was very much a social visionary kind of kid. and even though I was sort of shy and introverted, I was organically thrust into leadership positions from grammar school on. But I also grew up in a, in a very, very toxic family. And in addition to that, there was just a real gap between how I saw the world and a lot of what I saw happening. And what was very scary is that the social visionary type people um, were assassinated when I was very small. I went from one assembly to the next watching Robert, Lu Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy, all of them were shot in a very um, short period of time. So I was afraid if I really came out and did what they did, someone would shoot me. Mm -hmm. But when I was um, 16 and I worked at Boston's baseball stadium, Fenway Park, um, I was coming home on public transportation and a stranger came out of the shadows and tried to rape and murder me. And so here I was, you know, I might have been a leader in my community, but I was really just a 16-year-old kid and I was far from what I saw I needed to contribute with my life. And I tried to talk my way out, which only pissed him off. And I physically tried to fight my way out. And even though I was five foot six and a tennis player, a six foot two raging man is no match, you know, for me. Yeah. I couldn't possibly get away. So I ended up having to turn it over to the God I was never raised to believe in. My, there's a whole thread of four-legged animals running through my life and my work. My, my brother and I used to joke that God was dog spelled backwards, which isn't mm -hmm. the worst theory. But the long and short of it is I had to turn it over to the God I was never raised to believe in and a little voice first came through my heart that said if, if I was going to live I had to really commit to that sense of mission I had inside so I made that commitment from my heart and then more words came through my heart that said to forgive the man who was beating my face in and trying to kill me and without using my head without understanding the meaning of forgiveness um, I just spoke right from my heart and I told the man I forgive you and he burst into tears and stopped beating me. Mm. And metaphorically, he was my first therapy client. The first words out of his mouth were, I don't want to be doing this. And um, that's where I literally had an experience of the power of the heart and where I began to study the power of the heart. Wow. So really that sense of um, the moment, uh, speaking from the heart, and I forgive you. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know that it was the I forgive you part that was as important as that I went in very deep and I listened to my heart. Because what I've learned over the years is that there's a very primal intelligence in the heart. Many people consider it at some level even more central than the brain. And research that's taken place in the more newly established fields of neurocardiology and neurochemistry have helped us understand the heart a lot better. I remember, you know, when I was in my 20s, um, and I'm 48 now, people at cocktail parties, when I talk about that I worked with the heart, would always make fun of me saying the heart's a mechanical pump that goes pump, pump. But it isn't that at all. It's like the, it's like a master gland, and it secretes hormones that help regulate the entire body. It's the first organ to form in the body. And um, it's also a very important organ as it relates to oxytocin and cortisol, which are oxytocin is the love or the bonding hormone, and cortisol is the fear hormone. Hormone. 
and in the last couple of years there's been quite a lot of information available about love and fear and cortisol and oxytocin but the long and short of it is when we're under what's called long-term stress and the funny thing is that's more than 15 minutes so anybody who routinely commutes to work will have long-term stress every day wow. never mind people with the bigger stresses of our lives about meaning or relationships or you know too much to do in the crazy busy world when we're under that kind of stress cortisol is secreted to, which originates in our days where we didn't live in this world where we had hunter-gatherer forefathers and the kinds of stressors they faced more were like starvation or or major injury or you know um, really bad weather those are the kinds of things so the body had to mobilize and break down non-essential organs and tissues to feed vital organs so when cortisol levels are high you know we automatically digest our bones muscles and joints so that our vital internal organs stay alive and it, it, it induces a lot of the things we see in our culture day today it makes us hungry and we reach for high calorie food you know um, it causes depression and anxiety um, it weakens our immune system it suppresses libido um, it can be toxic to brain cells it's correlated with all of the cardiovascular disease we find whether it be high blood pressure or heart disease clogged arteries it contributes to obesity diabetes and osteoporosis so the antidote to cortisol as it turns out besides changing our lives so there isn't that much stress is creating more oxytocin in our body which is known as the bonding hormone because when moms give birth to babies and I had this experience firsthand when I had my son the body automatically starts to, to generate oxytocin because it facilitates emotional bonding and um, it's in many ways the anti-stress hormone it counteracts the effects of cortisol and all of the, the, the things that, that degrade our health can be reversed when we have regular oxytocin levels in our body and some of the ways that we generate that are through things like the very kind of body psychotherapy that I practice and teach um, meditation which is a key part of, of the work um, nurturing touch with permission um, is a big piece um, having real meaningful heart-to-heart -heart listening and emotional support um, having a place where the pace is just more quiet and slow and reflective much like a, a spiritual space or a space of worship so Linda um, I want to just check uh, mm -hmm. at, uh, in a way at the risk of simplifying mm -hmm. too much what I'm hearing is that stress in our life and stress is something which you say long-term stress can be as little as 15 minutes mm -hmm. uh, creates um, a use of cortisol which depletes our body in lots of different ways mm -hmm. and the uh, corrective to that is to increase the levels of oxytocin mm -hmm. which is a corrective experience that we can recreate through the experience of love bonding as well as meditation psychotherapy and other corrective experiences. Mm -hmm. Yes, that? that's a good way to summarize it. Okay. So in doing that, you obviously uh, change and address the criticism of, oh, the heart is just a pump, because if these very powerful um, chemicals that are released in our body that either deplete us or, or strengthen us have to do with the heart, obviously that has a, there's a central role for the heart. Yes, yes, and there are, there are many other levels where the heart plays a role too. If I move over more to the field of neurocardiology, um, I have a colleague named Linda Russick who 
was used to be at the University of Arizona, who still lives in Arizona. She and her dad um, were at Harvard Medical School doing some of the original work on heart-brain registration. And what's been found is that the electromagnetic field generated by the heart is the strongest in the body. The electrical charge generated by the heart is about 60 times that of the brain. And the magnetic force field generated by the heart is 5,000 times of that of the brain. And where that um, is important is that the literal power of our heart is actually stronger than the electromagnetic power of the brain. And in the research my colleague did, um, they found you could see heart-brain registration when they were doing their research. So when a person is in a very grounded, solid emotional space, their heart field will impact the mental space of the people around them. And what, how, if I apply that to the work that I do, I clearly have to take very good care of myself, live a balanced, grounded, reasonably paced life, you know, engaged but still slow and spacious so that when any person comes to work with me, I can be an embodiment of a very clear, grounded heart space that can help them, therefore, connect to their heart and their body and center at that energetic level because when people are within um, 8 to 10 feet of each other, their heart waves interact even without words. And when there's touch, because my work includes touch with permission to facilitate the emotional work, that's a very direct conduit for that heart energy field to, to meet another person's energy field as well. So in terms of working with the literal energy field and the electromagnetic force of the heart, that's another tool that can be applied in this kind of work. Okay, so that if you have uh, both that um, research uh, the medical research, but also your direct experience of it that shows how there is uh, an energy that's transmitted person to person mm-hmm. that comes from the heart. And actually, I think in your work, you talk a lot about also the um, what things were in a tribal society where people had more of a connection mm-hmm. and how this work is a conduit to finding that. Yes, yes. I, I love to work one-on-one with people and I love to work with couples because there's a whole depth of couple therapy that happens with this kind of work. However, there's something very, very special of doing this work in a group because just as our electromagnetic fields touch when we're within 8 to 10 feet of each other as two people, when you have a group of people, you know, sitting together, you create sort of a a heart container. And there's a level of depth of the work that can take place that's extremely profound. An example that was very, very moving to me, and this probably happened about 10 years ago, there was a woman um, who was actually, unfortunately, the story had been in the, the papers in the Boston area. Um, she was divorced, and her ex-husband had remarried and had gone, um, she had gone on her first vacation ever. And during that time, her ex-husband, his wife, and her two children were hit by a drunk driver. Ooh. And in the accident, her ex-husband, his second wife, one of her children were killed, and her other child was severely brain injured. And the grief and devastation for this woman, who herself was in the healing arts, was just beyond belief. And the the, the pain was so great that just regular therapy or even regular body work wasn't really touching it. And she came to to a a group that I, a workshop that I ran that was a group setting. And because we actually had 
had the entire group present and therefore we had a much deeper container. There was a way we really had the village. There's the saying, it takes a village. Mm-hmm. It took a village to create the containment for this woman to really delve into the depths of her grief. And it took our physical bodies to make some sort of physical contact for her to be able to scream and writhe and be angry and sad at the depths that really met where she was. And that, that experience was so profound, she actually started to study with me afterwards. I had another experience that was similar. I was giving a retreat at one of the major teaching centers around here, Kripalu, and um, there was a participant who had lost a son in a very tragic freak accident in another country. And here his son was in his 30s, and he was a star, and he was like the protege of um, a master teacher. So he was in this other country because he was an emissary for the kind of work um, that the man was, was putting out throughout the world. And he had a simple infection, and he just died. Mm. And you cannot imagine the grief of the man. I had a group of 38 people holding him. And that was the intensity necessary for the man to feel met in the depths of his sobbing and grief. So, so here what you're talking about is, um, you said the holding him, so um, there's really the, the physical connection, the touching, the uh, physical presence, yes. and the physical closeness are an integral part of your work. They very much are. These two situations are sort of unique because these are people with catastrophic situations, um, in which case... Um, at some level, they literally need the physical containment of other people's heart fields so that they can have the safety and even the internal space to connect with and express the depth of what they're feeling. In more ordinary work where I'm working one-on-one with somebody or even in a group where other people can be what I call helping hands, what we do is we track more what I call the emotional kinesthetic charge, which is the the edge of energy in the body. It's I talk about the emotion-body interface because where the emotion meets the body is a point of entry into working with the heart's energy field. So, for example, if I had a client who had a lump in their throat, with their permission, I might ask, is it okay to put a hand where you feel the lump in your throat? And they could take my hand, if it was all right, and adjust it to exactly where they feel the lump, and they could adjust it to exactly the right amount of contact or pressure. And, you know, it might be, as, as I put my hand where the lump on the throat was, they might just burst into tears, and I might say to them, your feelings are as important as your words, because often it's the nonverbal space that needs to be presenced and held as much as, as the talking part, and then after, you know, they, they had their tears come for a certain amount of time with me just being present, I might ask if the tears had a message, what would they say, and the person might say, you're not alone, so yeah. there's a, a real depth that comes through that physical presence, and if I am really an open, respectful space, they can feel that through my energy and through my body. So I want to just um, go over this a little bit. What you're describing is the case, this example of a person who feels um, an emotion as a physical symptom of a lump in the throat. Mm-hmm. And um, you ask for permission uh, to touch, but the touching occurs as 
the person places your hand on that part of their body, mm-hmm. feels the contact, and as they feel the contact, then there is the emotion coming up, in this case the tears. Mm-hmm. And um, what happened is it brought up that sense of aloneness for the yes. person. Yes, yes. And a piece that goes with this that's very, very important is emotional safety. That is the foundation of my work. One of the most interesting things I found, because I've been in this work for about 25 years and I have taught all over the world and taught quite a lot in this country too, is as I was leading workshops, I started to realize that when people felt emotionally unsafe, they had all the kinds of symptoms, be they physical or emotional or mental, that lead them to seek medical care or psychotherapy, whether it's physical things like lumps and throats or knots and stomachs or tensions in shoulders or hearts pounding, whether it's emotional responses like feeling afraid or hopeless or, you know, scared or alone, you know, whether it's thoughts like wanting to disappear, when's the other shoe going to drop, you know, is it ever going to be okay, whatever level, when a person feels unsafe, they have those kinds of symptoms. As emotional safety is created, though, those symptoms all start to go away and the person starts to experience more of a sense of connection and and inner peace. So as I became aware of that correlation, I realized that establishing emotional safety was the most important thing I can do. And for different people, it happens different ways. Some people, it's about presence, or and they'll only really get that I'm present with eye contact. With other people, it's silence and just being able to be present in the silence. With some people, it's a talking connection. Um, with other people, they feel the safety when there's touch. For other people, the safety is knowing that there doesn't ever have to be touch. But the most important thing for me is establishing emotional safety with, with the person I'm going to work with, both you know, from the very beginning and over time and in each and every moment. Okay, so very clearly you're, you're focusing on that emotional safety in the moment and over time. How do you track the sense of the client feeling emotional safety? Yes, that gets to the emotional kinesthetic charge, which I talked about earlier. Um, and it is, you know, at first I thought, was this just sort of an intuitive capacity I had? But because I've apprenticed um, other therapists, I've trained therapists since 1990, it's something that I've been able to help them come to know too. So what I could go so far as to say is that the human being is an organ of perception and that the skin is our largest organ and that when we get really grounded and have a strong sense of our own bodies, our own hearts, our own sensations, our own feelings, as we sort of learn that nonverbal language ourselves, we have a space where we can perceive and palpate that in somebody else. So I literally read somebody's energy at a physical, emotional level. That's how I tell. And so, for example, if a person is not feeling emotionally safe, I can feel a tightening in their energy. If a person really feels unsafe, I can feel them dissociate. I try not to let them get that far. You know, I try to to feel it as that direction is where the energy is shifting so that I can address, you know, what do they need to be safe one way or the other before they ever have to go that far because staying present and grounded is is a key piece too. But in essence, I can literally feel it, and I can feel it in my hands. I can feel it in my heart. I can feel it in my gut. I can feel it in every possible way, which is perhaps why my work is called Emotional Kinesthetic Psychotherapy, the kinesthetic 
referring to the felt sense. Yes, so you have that felt. So in other words, uh, the instrument uh, is how you feel things, that felt sense you have of other people. Yes. And that's something that happens either, uh, could it be described as intuition or resonance? Or? Yes, it's, it's a resonance. It's, it's, it's a kinesthetic intuition. In my training manual, I talk about kinesthetic intuition because it's different than intellectual intuition. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a body knowing. And as we, you know, as I, as I train therapists, one of the things I require of them is to do quite a lot of this work themselves so they experience what it's like because at some level if they haven't experienced that kind of connection and um, body knowing themselves, then it's very, very hard to track somebody else and therefore know how to respond respectfully to them. Okay, so then, um, um, you know, it is something that happens at an intuitive level, but at the, at the same time, uh, you notice that it is trainable because as you get more experience of it, then you develop the ability to... Yes, uh, yes. And, and if I have like a new apprentice, or even sometimes if I'm trying to teach a client more about their own body awareness or how to, to, how to hold their own somatic and emotional experience, is I'll just have them notice subtle little changes. Like one of the things that I do is say I've had my hand on someone. It could have been this case. If we go back to the lump in the throat, I've had my hand where the, the lump in the throat is, and the person has had some tears. And when I've asked what the message of my hand was, they've said, you're not alone. Um, then I'll ask what's happening in the throat, and the throat will often just soften up and relax, and the person you know, will feel light, and they won't feel sad. They'll feel a very different feeling with energy and with peace. And before the hand comes off because I ask permission for a hand to go on. I also ask permission before it ever comes off. I'll go through this little protocol of what you need to be safe and complete for the moment before the hand lets go and after they try to look at what they really need to be safe in the moment because one tool is if you can be safe in a moment, that is an anchor. That's a moment of really having what you need and in some ways one can say emotional safety is about learning and having what we need, experiences of what we need. One Once we've gotten that far, what I'll invite them to do is to take a little body Xerox of the way they're feeling in their body and the way it feels with my hand present with their body. Because they can take that little body Xerox as a a kinesthetic imprint, and that's something they can literally come back to at a sensory level, at an experiential level, from a memory place, and return to it, because then they know it's possible. So one can say, when you create an experience, when a person has a conscious record of an experience, then it is indeed a possibility. If you have not had that kind of experience, the best something can be is an intellectual concept, and it's often very intangible. So you're describing a situation where the client has the experience of your hand touching the part that's activated, the throat in that Mm -hmm. case, has the experience of not having you touching them, Mm -hmm. is able to notice the difference between both experiences, and then is able to remember what it's like to have the moment where they were being touched and feeling more. Yes. 
One can say is, because in, in my work I talk about feeding or nourishment, there's a degree that that kind of physical contact that's set up based on exactly what the person is feeling, so where the hand is and exactly the quality of touch, is tuned to be exactly the way the person needs it. Um, and then responding also to the emotional level of what's going on in addition to whatever the body tension is, the person gets something they need, and in some ways they feel literally nourished or fed by the experience. Mm-hmm. So they, knew, they, they have the before experience of the tension and, you know, not feeling so good. They have the process experience of how, you know, the contact is made and then the, the changes that happen along the way, which could include tears or release or something else. Then they have the experience of the afterwards when it's, it's almost like you've just gone through a cycle and something has completed for mm-hmm. them internally. So then they know what it likes to go is like to go through the cycle and for to feel that sense of completion or having been fed or nourished. And then they have the touch point of what it's like for the hand to let go and to still have that sense of feeling fed because many times they feel like I've left a magical carbon copy of my hand even when it's not there. Mm. So there are all kinds of level of neural rewiring that take place from that quality of contact. Yeah. So that's very dramatic when you explain it in the case of a physical contact, the hand touching. Yes. Uh, some of your work involves not touching. So how yes. does it happen when you deal with a client for whom touching is actually a no-no and safety, emotional safety comes from not being touched? Yes. Well, as I said, because of, you know, the, 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 the heart field is an energetic, palpable, physical phenomenon, even if we're not making physical contact. So I can still feel and read the signals from the client even when there isn't touch. So I will be attending to their emotional safety and, you know, I, I will ask them questions like, what do you need to be safe right now if I sense that I need to ask that? Often people just don't know because no one's ever attended to emotional safety in that kind of way. And, you know, whether it's what I say or if I talk or if I just am with them or if I invite them to go inside, one of the things I do quite a lot is I have people close their eyes and take a few deep breaths and just even notice what's happening in their own body and their own heart because most people aren't very experienced with their internal landscape. They don't, you know, if I say what's happening in your heart right now, they won't have a clue of what I mean until they start to have the experience of sensing and feeling their heart. And then the person might say, well, my heart feels really heavy. So, you know, I will certainly take them inside so they can have a sense of their body experience and their emotional experience. I can support them in feeling grounded, whether it's feeling the physical connection with, you know, the the couch they're sitting on or their feet on the ground. Um, You know, by all means, the key is really hearing them, respecting to them, and both responding to the content of whatever their story is and also to the energetic cues they're giving me from their body and their heart. Yeah, so obviously not just the contents of the story, but also the energetic cues. And I think maybe that's where you learned a lot from one of your masters, uh, Angelo. Yes. Angelo was the first feral cat I helped take off the streets. And actually, I wrote an article about 10 years ago that was published in Spirit of Change, which is a New England regional magazine. And that became one of their most um, popular stories. They just had their 20-year anniversary. I've written for them all 20 years. 
years. And when they did their best of 20 years issue, they republished Life on the Emotional Streets, The Feral Human. And you can actually read the article on their website, www.spiritofchange.org. But Angelo um, was a brown tabby and white cat um, who came into my driveway um, probably around 1990. And he was emaciated. He was incredibly thin and incredibly weak and terrified of people. And as is the case with many feral um, creatures, they are both dying of starvation but so afraid of humans that they'd rather die of starvation than get what they need. So the whole process, talk about emotional safety, of trying very earnestly to create some sort of connection with Angelo and one where I had to just really let go and have a very open hand, you know, with a feral cat, you never know if they're ever going to come back again. But what ended up happening over the course of about a year is he seemed to come back every single day. And we went from him being terrified even to know I was in the house to him being able to be in my driveway and be aware that I was thinking about him to him being able to take food I'd leave at the bottom of the stairs and then go away and he'd eat it when I was in the house to him letting me watch him eat to eventually one day coming in my front door when I opened it. And he ultimately was one of my most important teachers about the depth of what respect is, what presence is, what having an open hand so that I was truly not attached and yet holding a space for connection should he wish to to make it with me. He, He was one of my very most poignant teachers about the process of connection and intimacy. So as you're describing this, it feels like a very um, uh, powerful metaphor, powerful image to keep in mind in terms of what the process is. It's yes. like taming the feral heart. Yes, because there is a feral aspect to most of us people. There are not many people who have gotten through this world without some kind of trauma or deprivation or neglect or parts of ourselves that just simply haven't ever been connected with or developed. So, yes, there is very much a, a feral aspect to people. And I've found that that particular metaphor, you know, the feral human, is something that many, many people relate to and many people find me and come to work with me because they resonate with that metaphor. Yeah. And you talk about uh, the traumatized heart. Uh, And uh, um, so what's the, uh, the healing process? It's not just love. Well, it's, I mean, it's all how you define love. I mean, I think there's there's certainly a lot of skill. I, I could go so far as to say is that love is a skill. Mm. It's not just a feeling, it's a skill. And it's a skill that requires an ability to be very grounded within yourself and very present within yourself and very spacious, you know, but also to have really clear boundaries, too, because a feral animal only feels comfortable and safe when you're super present and grounded with a, a sort of a magic balance of spaciousness and yet boundariness. Having, I actually ended up taking eight feral cats off the streets 
and I've also worked with wolves, and there's a similar kind of groundedness required to work with a wolf as well. So one could say that having, you know, the presence and being emotionally willing to bring that kind of attention and respect to another being, it's what I call sacred respect, By and, and it also includes managing your own emotional, physical, and psychic energy. Yeah. You know, so I could say, you know, I'm a light bulb, and rather than having a one, two, and three, you know, um, switch, I might have, you know, a, about ten different settings from very soft to very intense because that's what the person or the animal in front of me needs in order to feel safe and in order to feel met. So part of, you know, to me, loving is the ability to modulate my presence and my energy so that I meet the, the being in the space which is where they need to be met. Hmm. And to me, that is a part of loving. Yeah, so loving is a skill that you can develop yes. and learn to modulate. And uh, Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and an article I wrote um, many years back on the subject, I wrote one called Learning to Love Another Person on Their Own Terms, mm-hmm. because I think that's a huge piece, too. You know, every single person who comes to you, and this this applies to life, it applies to clients, it applies to children who you're, come into your life, it applies to a partner or a friend or a colleague. Everyone is a unique individual. And to create both the, the emotional space, the mental space, the you know, the energetic space, to truly, truly witness somebody for who they are and, and to see the unique gem of what is in front of you, the unique story, and to truly respect it and take the person in for who they are. That's a huge piece of loving, and to me, that really is a skill. Well, that sounds like a wonderful way to um, to conclude this interview, Linda. Thanks for speaking with me and for the USABP members. It's, it's been my pleasure, Serge. And- this recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website relationalimplicit.com